Talk Live. Welcome to Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, the creator of the Liberty Conspiracy, which you can watch or hear every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern on Rumble and Rockfin and on my Twitter, which is at Gard Goldsmith. Thanks so much for tuning in as we get to explore issues from Liberty Conspiracy Live. And, of course, I welcome you to contact me over on Twitter. It's amazing how none of these big oligarchical, conceit, arrogant-fueled people recognize that we may live in a world of so-called limited resources, according to their view, limited natural resources. But the ultimate resource is the human mind. And so they adopt a Paul Ehrlich, Thomas Malthus, limited resources, planned austerity for everybody's good, eugenics, population control, life control mindset. This is their worldview. While the Malthusians and the eugenicists and the Planned Parenthood people and the people who want to try to stifle your ability to control your life and who want to micromanage your life with centrally planned authority, whether it's about your money or it's about your trade or it's about your self-defense, whatever it might be, you can't be an independent thinker. That independent thought is the ultimate resource. As I mentioned, if you look at Warren Brooks, he has a book called The Economy in Mind. You look at Julian Simon, who had a bet against Paul Ehrlich. They took a basket of goods and they said, in X number of years, will this basket of goods be more plentiful or will it be in shorter supply and higher price? And Julian Simon, the author of the books, The Ultimate Resource, he's a free market, was a free market economist, The Ultimate Resource 1 and The Ultimate Resource 2, Julian Simon won the bet. 20 years later, those resources were more plentiful, they were less expensive, and people's lives were bettered, even as the population increased, contrary to what Paul Ehrlich predicted. Paul Ehrlich, really the 20th century's uh, holder of the Malthusian idea, sort of the neo-Malthusian idea that if everybody got what they wanted, if people weren't controlled, if population wasn't controlled, then people would end up in war and famine and in terrible living standards. But what they didn't realize was that by allowing people, and this is the economic lesson, by allowing people to be able to be free, not only can they discover new ways to help other people, but one of the key things is by not taxing and not regulating, so-called regulating their lives, they have more usable capital left over that is leverageable to then start applying to new ways to live, to new ways to help people. So when the government siphons off all of that income, the economic lesson coming out of this is that you're actually retarding the ability of the human mind to discover new ways to better people's lives and then to test that on the market. In every way, these people stand against 
human progress. They don't stand for human progress. The Neo-Malthusians, the eugenicists, the Planned Parenthood people, the climate canard fascists, they all push for this sort of austerity in our lives. And by saying that we have to live in more austere circumstances, by taking our money away from us, they're taking away the opportunity for humanity to become even more fruitful, more plentiful, and live better lives. They're creating the very circumstances that they're telling us are to be ours. They are imposing them on us. It's really amazing. So if you get a chance, I ordered the book today, Controligarchs. I think it's going to be fantastic, and I really enjoyed that conversation on David's show. It was, it was phenomenal. Now, let's head over and find out a little bit about getting on a train, one and all. Let's hear from... Psychedelic Furs Live. This is from the House of Blues in Los Angeles, 2001. Richard Butler. Man, they rock live. They're so good. If you thought they were just the ghost in you, or the poppier version of Pretty in Pink, then check out their first two albums. That's John Ashton there. John Ashton is he that that guy, by the way, uh, Richard Fortas produced the Psychedelic Furs most recent record. He has played live for Guns N' Roses for many, many years. And uh, he's just an amazing guitarist. He's also a long distance runner. And I think it's time for us to check out Aaron Mate's latest. This comes to us from the Gray Zones YouTube channel. You may remember that empty seat. What happened right before that empty seat? Chris Coons told Aaron Mate that if he didn't stop asking him questions about the United States supplying weapons to Israel, the United States not speaking up, the United States government forcing us to pay for those weapons to go and kill thousands of innocent people, then um, Mr. Kuntz was going to get Aaron Monte thrown off the train if he didn't stop asking him questions, not on a silent scam track car, but on a quiet scam track car. Here is what happened. Why not at least call for a ceasefire? Now, do remember, everybody, that Mr. Kuntz there said that he is all in favor. He, he is absolutely dedicated to giving to humanitarian causes. Those humanitarian causes, I guess he must get confused between armaments, arms and ammunition, and criminal threatening against us who are being forced to pay for it, and actual humanitarian causes, which are done peacefully and through voluntary action. He doesn't seem to grasp it. 
He also doesn't seem to grasp the fact that he swore an oath to the U.S. Constitution and is urinating all over it. But that hypocrisy being what it is, Aramate stood tall. Now, let me just give you a quick idea. Aaron Mate was depicted by the New York Post, which, of course, has a very sizable Jewish readership and has been very in favor of Israel doing whatever it so-called needs to do to ferret out the Hamas terrorists, you know, the ones that the government of Israel and the government of the United States supported to run the political offices of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, even as the Israelis continue to use their opposition to negotiation as a way to engage in aggression and further encroach into and into and into Gaza. Um, Mr. What's his name? Hama uh, Coons. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Coons uh, seems not to want to discuss any of that stuff and wants to say he's all in favor of humanitarianism. Well, the New York Post got word about this. Maybe they saw Aaron Mate post the video of him asking questions of this bloodthirsty maniac. And uh, the New York Post said that Aaron Mate had accosted this man. Now, if you saw the video and we showed it all last night, I can show a por portion of it today. You'll see that Aaron Mate simply asked very quiet questions. They were sitting across from each other. That was all he did. It wasn't silent. And this man who has earned his living, so-called earned, has derived his livelihood, I'll say, off of people like Aaron Mate's back. He had the gall to say, I'm going to get you thrown off this train. Making the basic rules of how we operate on Amtrak. Okay, and the question Please is, stop. and I believe we're breaking international law. And of course, law. the basic rules of, as Aaron Mate says, international law, the basic rules of the Geneva Accords, the basic rules of the U.S. Constitution seem to go over this guy's head. Uh, okay. By supporting Thanks for your opinions. Yes. You've had a lot of my time. Please move on. Why not? So, uh, you've had a lot of my time. Anybody see the time code here? Yeah, let me just uh, bring the whole thing up there. Two minutes and 49 seconds. You've had a lot of my time. Gee, that is something, huh? It's It sure is good. I wonder if he were, as I mentioned, a lobbyist for the Israeli lobby, where this guy between 2015 and 2020 got uh, almost $90,000 from Israeli lobbyists or from, oh, defense contractors. I wonder if Aaron Mate, if he worked for any of them, because, of course, Aaron Mate is Jewish. I wonder if he could get more time with Chris Kuntz. I wonder if he could sit next to Chris Kuntz and they could have a nice, fine conversation on scam track, that unconstitutional boondoggle. Here's what happened. Everybody. Not at least right. call for a ceasefire. By the way, again, oh, here we go. So after I questioned Senator Chris Coons about his support for Israeli mass killings of Palestinians in Gaza, I've been taken off of the train and now being questioned by police. So what? So what? Service, so they had me moved seats we until I agreed. We weren't there, so well, I have my change. What happened was, I sat at the... 
Let the train go by so I can hear you. I don't want to be rude and not hear you. So what happened was I sat across. Hold on, let the train go by so okay. we can hear you. I don't want to okay. you to have to repeat yourself and our investigation. I got it. So what happened was I sat across from a U.S. senator, okay. Chris Coons. We were in the quiet car. We're not allowed. We're not supposed to talk. But I'm a journalist, and there's a massacre going on now in Gaza. And I thought it was important to ask him why he's not supporting calls for a ceasefire. So we had an exchange. I filmed the exchange. He got up and left. He came back and asked that I be moved. The uh, the uh, Antrac staffer came over, asked me to move, and I complied. And I went and sat in a different seat as they asked me to do. And now apparently they've asked for me to be removed from the train. So here we are. So all we got. Yeah. Was from the conductor wanting you removed from the train. Okay. So the conductor is in charge of the train. Right. Front to back, side to side, top to bottom. Yeah. If he asks, hey, we want this gentleman removed, I go get a station manager. Hey, is there something we can work out? I understand. And this is a senator and he has power, so he probably. I can't answer when that. A senator asked I didn't even for, know what senator well, it was. I'm just. It was Senator Chris Coons and he, he threatened to have me thrown off, and I, I'm not surprised. I that, can't answer that because okay. that's not what we I understand. So I've just been removed from an Amtrak train going to Washington, D.C after I questioned Democratic Senator Chris Coons about his support for the Israeli mass murder campaign in Gaza and his refusal to call for a ceasefire. After I questioned him, he left his seat, then he came back, and then he asked that I be removed. And so a Amtrak staffer came over and told me to change seats or else I'd be thrown off the train. And in Senator Coons' defense, this was the quiet car, and so I did violate the norms of the quiet car by questioning him about his stance. But I felt this was important because we're talking about a massacre in Gaza. And I felt okay violating the norms of the quiet car, given that I believe we're violating international law by supporting the murder of so many innocents inside Gaza. So after he made that request, I did move my seat. I complied and I sat somewhere else and the train continued along uh but then a while later he walked by me we did not exchange words i was respecting the sanctity of the quiet car and his request that i no longer question him but shortly after that the train stopped in philadelphia and all of a sudden i was taken off the train by police and told that i had been thrown off by the conductor i'm assuming at the request of senator coons so senator coons if it makes you feel better to have me removed from a train because I bothered you. I understand it's not pleasant to be questioned, especially not to be questioned about supporting the mass murder of civilians. But what I hope you will still address is why you are supporting this mass murder, why you won't call for a ceasefire along with some of your democratic colleagues who are in the house. And I don't regret at all questioning you about that, even though it was in, the quiet car because right now as inconvenienced as you were by my questions there are over two million people in gaza who are being massacred and displaced and given that this is being done with u.s weaponry their rights need to be addressed and these questions need to be answered good job good job you can go to the gray zone youtube channel for that everybody and uh, check it out let me make that a little bit bigger for you so you can see i'll take myself off the screen the gray zone three hundred sixteen thousand subscribers that is phenomenal and uh yeah great work by aaron mate what a gutsy guy 
as this sort of thing happens. Here is antiwar.com. Gaza doctors plead for help saving premature babies at Al-Shifa Hospital. At least three babies have died since incubators stopped working. But, you know, it's always good that the Israelis have control over the power and the water. You know, doctors at Gaza's Al-Shifa Hospital are pleading for help as the medical facility has ceased functioning after its power failed over the weekend amid an Israeli siege. The medical staff has refused to evacuate the hospital due to fears that the approximately 700 patients they would leave behind will die. And that, again, is one of the incredibly callous things that we hear from some of these uh, really, really outspoken people who say that Israel can just do anything they want there. Uh, I've actually heard some people say, well, they should evacuate those hospitals. They give them a day or seven hours. I was like, are you kidding me? You got people who are critically injured. You've got women who are giving birth and you're going to start moving people. What are you talking about? It's absolutely crazy. It's absolutely insane. And again, the final nut of the whole thing is we can all come up with our differing opinions, sometimes similar opinions about this sort of thing or whatever. But the fact is there is a moral, moral core here. And the moral core is regardless of somebody's opinion for or against something, no one should be forced to pay for something that he or she finds morally reprehensible. That's theft, first of all, or coercion through threats of violence, which, of course, Elizabeth Warren will use against people if they want to get ammunition. She'll point government ammunition at them. Here's more from antiwar.com. Dave DeCamp was a guest today on the Ron Paul Liberty Report, by the way. It was a great conversation. And uh, I've got a segment that I want to play for you tomorrow, a little appetite wetter for tomorrow, preview for tomorrow, about uh, one of the great things that Ron Paul said. Really terrific stuff. Among the at-risk patients are newborn and premature babies who were taken off incubators due to the power outage. Dr. Ahmed Mukalati, Al-Shifa's head of plastic surgery, told ABC News, and good for them to get this out there, that three out of 39 babies in the hospital's neonatal unit have died since the incubators stopped working on Saturday. Dr. Shireen Noman Abed, a neonatologist, said she expects all the babies to die due to a lack of clean water to mix formula with. Most of them are preterm babies who need incubators, who need electricity, who need special food, who need care, she said. We expect all to die because they don't have water to prepare formula for them. Where's Bill Gates? I thought he had that great thing where you could, you know, get potable drinking water in Africa from toilet sewage. Wasn't that all a big deal for Bill Gates? Why isn't he airlifting those things? Why why isn't he getting that stuff in there? rather than spending money on vaccination, so-called, that, you know, in the past has left lots of women in Africa sterile. How about that? Oh, maybe he doesn't really care that much about increasing the population or keeping people alive. Maybe, just maybe. Maybe he follows in the footsteps of his parents who are intimately involved with Planned Parenthood. Big stuff. 
from antiwar.com. Gaza doctors plead for help. And of course, there have been four more attacks on the U.S. in Syria as the U.S. continues to sit on a third of Syria. So one positive that's coming out of this, you might see from, of course, antiwar.com again. But uh, the Washington Post has reported on this. Hamas says it's discussed freeing 70 hostages in exchange for a five-day truce. And it looks like that this ceasefire is coming. Netanyahu previously rejected it, as they say. And uh, just to, of course, give you a sense of the way the Hamas people frame this, they say that a lot of the people that Israel, that the Israeli government was holding really were much like hostages. They were not being charged with anything. They had no evidence against them. And I know it sounds almost like something the George W. Bush administration or the Obama administration would do, or maybe Hillary Clinton might try to do, or what the British and the Americans are, are doing to Julian Assange. And of course, that's the guy that Hillary Clinton says, can't we just drone this guy? But she's still invited on The View. When are they going to invite Julian Assange's wife? Or he might be held prisoner long enough that they could invite some of his kids to join them on The View. Let's hope the show doesn't last that long. We'll be back with more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, and I want to let you know that this hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash, digital cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction, and its features ensure Dash is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% of attacks by their chain locks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and it's also available on multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Eleutheromania. The insatiable desire for freedom. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. We return with Free Talk Live and Liberty Conspiracy. Now let's move on to other themes, everybody. I want to hear a little something from the courtrooms. Yeah. 
So we've got a lot to discuss, and it has been an absolutely bizarre episode so far. So things are a little bit uh, whacked out. But here we go. Let me get the information to you. All right, one and all. Now, if you get the opportunity, check out this new story. And I was going to play the uh, uh, blow-up song by Human Sexual Response, but I'm just going to go right to this. The AP is reporting that a judge has denied the initial request to temporarily block North Dakota's ban on kids' gender-affirming care, as they call it. Gender-affirming care, according to the Associated Press. Because, you know, if you're a writer for the Associated Press, they have their guidebook. And you can't call it mutilation. You can't call it psychic attacks. No, you can't do that. Here it is. Bismarck, North Dakota. A North Dakota judge has ruled that he won't immediately block the state's ban on gender-affirming so-called health care for minors. So let me ask you your opinion, everybody. Within the statist realm, and I think that there are answers to this that can be uh, more readily uh, divined uh, by not looking at the state, but obviously people might have some different opinions here. but. I thought, supposedly, the state was there to prevent people from harming other people. But, of course, that depends on how the state defines harm, which is now a collectivist decision. What is the definition of harm? Now, if one were to, say, safely feel or comfortably feel that the golden rule probably would win out most of the time that judeo-christian ideas of physical harm theft extortion coercion the kinds of things that were verboten in common law without the state but if one were to say okay we think those would probably be translated into the state the way john locke did um then maybe they might think that the state would probably have statutes against parents bringing their kids to doctors to have parts of their bodies removed to make the kids feel good at, say, age 12, to give them chemicals that will permanently damage their bodies and their, and their brains. You know, you've got the idea of parental control over one's children. And constantly we hear, especially from left-wing people, you can't always have that. You can't have parents making all the decisions. Even conservatives would say you can't have parents abusing the kids within the statist realm. What is abuse? Now, being an anarchist, I say the problem is that you're never going to be able to hold on to those principles because the state always expands. It's always being used. People always want to get at the state to make it do what they want to do, to get, oh, books, mm, Jimmy has two daddies into the library or the school system, to lower the school standards. As we saw yesterday in Washington, D.C., they've got social workers. They no longer want to have the same standards for the social workers because they say those standards, they discriminate against as they say, people of color rather than black people. I don't know what color you have to be, but evidently that is, you know, Orwellian newspeak for black people. I don't know. 
as uh, the great David Brodnoy used to say, you don't say fries are French. You say French fries. But anyway, that seems to be water under the proverbial Orwellian Newspeak Bridge. The actual term people of color, as amorphous as it is, I guess everybody knows what that signal is because it's not racist at all to understand what that means. Evidently, that's not racist when people say people of color. What color? I don't know. People of height? You mean tall people? People of girth? Fat people? I don't know. So now we've got a situation where the state is defining what is or is not harm. Because, of course, that is the locking idea behind the state. The state is there in order to prevent harm. And in order to prevent harm, the state claims the power to harm you. Just ask Liz Warren. So with that stated, then how do we look at and what is your opinion of how this is resolved within the state? If the parents think that it's perfectly acceptable to chop pieces off of their child or to chemically castrate their child or to chemically turn their daughter into a daughter filled with testosterone, growing hair and unbalanced mentally compared to what she might have been, then who are we to say? Liberals might say, I thought you were in favor of parental control. How far does the parental control go before it's abuse? That's one of the problems with the state. Now, I happen to think that you would get a cipher that would be not just as good, but better if you had voluntary associations and we didn't have the moral undercutting of, I'm going to force my neighbor to pay for what I think is the protection or the freedom of parents or the protection of kids. The question is, if you have an anarchist society, would that devolve into one anarchist group going and trying to break into another anarchist group to protect kids, right? But with this story out of Bismarck, North Dakota, I think we can see that there is an agenda from the Associated Press, as they call this affirming care for minors, gender affirming care. And we see them report District Judge Jackson Lofgren on Monday denied a temporary restraining order the plaintiffs had requested. They also asked for a preliminary injunction that would temporarily block enforcement of the law as their case proceeds. A hearing is set for January for that request. So again, this is a district judge inside North Dakota. Lofgren cited the plaintiff's nearly five-month delay in filing their complaint and their argument hinging upon inclusion in a protected class not previously recognized by the North Dakota Supreme Court or a new application of state constitutional principles. So, they're not recognized as a particular minority. They're not a class that's been previously recognized. What if they were? It says here, under the law, it is a felony for a healthcare provider to perform so-called gender-affirming surgery on a minor and a misdemeanor to prescribe or give hormone treatments, as they call them, or puberty blockers to a child. 
Supporters of the ban argue that it protects children from what they say are irreversible effects of treatments and surgeries. Opponents contend that the ban will harm transgender youth. They say they're at greater risk of depression. Yeah, and that risk increases after they get all these treatments. And suicide risk increases as well. What do you think? Let me turn to Rockfin Chat. Because I think very clearly these parents who enter into this realm could be cited for abuse under statutes, child abuse. And I'm looking over in Rockfin chat right now. And I'm looking over in Rumble chat as well. HAL 9000 says the push for trans surgery is from the drug companies for puberty blockers. Excellent point. So glad you mentioned that. So glad. Absolutely. (laughs) MOE says puberty blockers. Great Chinese guard. I don't really know. Oh, puberty blockers. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) I see. Yeah, I misread it. Yes. Brian says, again, these people say gender is a social construct. So why do you need surgery to affirm your gender? Yes. So true. So true. Hey, Geesebusters, I just saw your donation. Thank you. It just popped up. I enjoy watching your show. Thank you. Yeah, I can't. You know, this is one of those things where I sort of can't wait for tomorrow because I know it's going to be all set. At least I thought it was going to be all set today. Anyway, so. Again, you know, they're, if people are going to go by the state and they think they're going to get this all resolved and they're going to have some answer, that answer is not going to last because different people are going to run the state, right? And it may be that the state is always going to arise. But again, I'll bring up history. I go with the Irish Brehan law system, the Viking Goddard system, and so on. And those lasted a thousand years. They were voluntary. So... There is historical precedence for anarchy, or otherwise known as voluntarism, right? Now, the voluntarist system didn't eliminate all disputes, but it did eliminate the constant pressure of people being forced to cop up stuff all the time under constant predation, where everybody is pitted against each other. It split things into smaller groups. I think at least... If you're going to go by a state system, that founder's idea of smaller groups is a very valuable idea. And I think it was much better under the Articles of Confederation. And we've got some information about uh, the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution coming up, although I might do it tomorrow night because I don't know whether the the vibe is just right for this tonight, whether I can really roll it with the dynamism I wanted. But uh, I've got so much planned for you tonight. Uh, I I wanted to make things super short, super fast tonight, but, you know, it's just you you lose that time in the beginning of the program. It makes it tough. Now I want to turn to... I'm going to leave that hanging because I think there is no answer for this sort of thing under a state paradigm. And, uh, of course, under that state paradigm, you're still forcing people to pay for the judicial system and the policing system and the social work system and the people who write the statutes and all that stuff. So it at its at its basis, it's immoral. But I want to turn to another story. This one is about the Supreme Court. And I think you'll find this very interesting. Now, this is a positive Actually, the Supreme Court has issued a ruling in favor 
of a postal worker's religious liberty, addressing the accommodation of religious practices in the workplace. Now, this is a U.S. postal worker. So, again, think about this, right? Think about the fact that this is a government worker who agrees to work for the government. This isn't even one of the citizens upon whom the government is forcing its mandates, right? This isn't even a person who opens up a business and the government says, you got to do what we tell you. You must conform to Title VIII. You're a college. You got to conform to Title IX. Not even that. This isn't the airport where they're making you go through the TSA. This is a person who voluntarily applies for and gets a job with the U.S. Postal Service, which is explicitly allowed to exist under their constitutional paradigm. Not the only postal service. (laughs) Lysander Spooner showed that you can do a much better job privately in the 19th century. He showed that and they tried to shut up. They did shut him down. But and of course, he is the guy who wrote No Authority, the Const- No Trees in the Constitution of No Authority, and showed that the Constitution doesn't have any authority over any of us. But this is a very interesting case, and it applies to what I've mentioned on the program many times. One of the big lessons called unconstitutional conditions. The Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of a postal worker's religious liberty case addressing the accommodation of religious practices in the workplace. Now, this is not about jabs. This is about working on Sundays. The case involved a Christian mailman's request not to deliver parcels on Sundays due to religious observance. The decision rejected a 1977 ruling that set the standard for accommodating religious practices, focusing on the interpretation of undue hardship for employers. Now, again, you see they're they're mixing apples and oranges here, but it seems like they're going to apply this to private employees and employers. But there's a problem here. Because, again, if you're a private employer, You should be able to set the standards by which you want people to work for you. I want you to work on Sundays. Sorry, I don't want to work on Sundays. Thank you very much. We're done. How is it that the government can take this and apply it to private industry? Where now you're interfering with rights. You're not supporting rights. You're interfering with private contract rights, with private property rights. How is it they can do that? Let's continue with this story. The case has implications for Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's if, again, if you expand it beyond the government sphere. Now, the United States Postal Service is supposedly a private corporation, but it's not. That's what they tell us. It's not. It was created by the federal government. It's a government-created corporation like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. It gets government subsidies. It's a government entity. That's what it is. The case has implications for Title VII. Quote, the government believes undue hardship arises when there is lost efficiency, weekly payment of premium wages, or denial of a co-worker's shift preference, attorney Aaron Street said. Thus, under the government's test, a diabetic employee could receive snack breaks under the Americans with Disability Act, but not prayer breaks under Title VII, for that might cause lost efficiency. 
You see the way that they put all these caveats on the government deciding what can happen in a, in a situation of free association? Title seven of the 1964 Act, uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act, everybody, that is a complete infringement on the right to contract. It's an infringement on private property. And then they come up with these various ways to say, well, it can be infringed on here, but if it loses efficiency, well, who decides what's efficiency? Can it be the employer or not? And what other contextual situations can the employer decide he or she prefers? Does it only have to be efficiency? Is that just what the politicians and the jurors say on the Supreme Court? Oh, it can only be that. Why? You're not involved with that business. Why don't you get your nose out of it? Why don't we just tell you when you can come home, what you can do in your house, anything like that? It's private property. The court's decision may align with both both right and left perspectives on religious liberty. The American Postal Workers Union noted this, a day off is not the special privilege of the religious. Days off, especially on the weekend, are when parents can send spend the day with children. So you see, they're starting to open it up to say, well, why not anything? Why not another? I don't want to work on Sunday for this reason. I don't want to work on Sunday because I like days that start with S. I want to be with my kids. I want to have a barbecue. Why does it have to be religion? Why can't individuals choose for themselves? Why is it that the government decides, well, the religious stuff can take precedence? Why? That's someone else telling you where you can exercise your freedom of contract. That's an imposition. That itself is anti-religious, for goodness sake. That's theft of your private property and theft of your free will, for God's sake. People can't see how completely bizarre and upside down this is. They're saying that, well, for religious reasons, you can get a day off from the U.S. Postal Service. Whether or not this applies to private companies, we're not sure. But it could, but only on the religious front. Well, if it's, on, if it's not on the religious front but you're still stopping people from using their free will, then it is on the religious front. It is. You can't deny this. We're given individual free will. We have to be able to exercise our free will in order to be able to gain entrance to heaven, to do what God tells us to do. We don't answer to the state or to people who turn to the state to get them to enforce their decisions over our lives. That's all the state is, is just a bunch of people. And sometimes those people will work for people who approach them and say, hey, can you get this guy to do this? I want him to do that. That's that's violence. By allowing employers to refuse to accommodate employees' beliefs, said the Muslim Public Affairs Council in a brief, beliefs for any reason, Hardison forces devout employees to make an impossible daily choice between religious duty and livelihood. This may be one of those religious liberty cases where the right and the left are actually aligned, said law professor James Phillips. So that is a big deal. The question is, again, will a private employer or a private employee then sue 
to say that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I'm an employer, and I decide whether or not I want my employees to work on Sundays. And if I don't want them, if I want them to work on Sundays and they won't, I should be able to fire them. Right now, the United States government is being prevented. The U.S. Postal Service, I should say, that branch of the U.S. government is being prevented by this decision now from the Supreme Court. But what will happen if a private employer actually tries to exercise control over his own private property? And when we talk about control over private property, let's talk about this next one. Supreme Court delivers blow to vaccine skeptics. Newsweek's Matthew Impelli writes about this. I'll withhold judgment. You can see what you think about Matthew Impelli's journalistic uh, skills. The U.S. Supreme Court rejected to hear an appeal. So that means that the lower court ruling stands. An appeal relating to COVID-19 so-called vaccine requirements in the workplace dealing a blow to vaccine skeptics across the nation. Hmm. Vaccine skeptics. As I posted on Twitter, you mean people who actually were aware of this? People who actually were aware of their rights? People who knew that they weren't vaccines? But even then, if you want to be a vaccine skeptic, you should be able to. It shouldn't be some sort of uh, evil term some black broad, broad, broad brush against you, to use the Chinese. In two, on Tuesday morning, the Supreme Court orders, orders list showed that it was denying to hear any further arguments in the case of Katie Sesney et al. versus, you got it, governor of New Jersey et al. The case focused on four New Jersey nurses, I'm from Jersey, who filed a lawsuit against Jersey's COVID-19 so-called vaccine requirements in the workplace, citing religious freedom and health concerns. What they should have cited was the contract clause, because they already had a contract with their employers. And then they could have gone in and say, you are interfering with our contract. The Supreme Court did, of course, the court wouldn't rule in their favor on that either. <laughs> this, but it's it's very clear. The Supreme Court did not provide any further explanation for its refusal to hear the case, but the decision allows a ruling in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit to stand. The lower court ruled that the vaccine mandate challenged by the nurses did not violate their constitutional freedoms and allowed an executive order from New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy to stay in place. Yeah, now that would uh, that would be the guy who, as you know, he said to Tucker Carlson wasn't paying attention to the Bill of Rights when he imposed his lockdowns and mandates. Uh, he said that the Bill of Rights and the Constitution was above his pay grade. Well, how about any money that he gets should be above his pay grade and he should go to prison? We are disappointed the Supreme Court did not take up the, this issue now, but hope that it will take up this question soon, said the plaintiff's attorney, Dana Weffer. And she told this to Newsweek on Tuesday afternoon. She said, we hope that it will take up the question soon, whether in this case after final judgment or another case. We need our highest court to provide guidance on this important question of liberty before another pandemic, so-called, which it wasn't a pandemic, or another emergency, so-called vaccine. The decision by the Supreme Court Tuesday comes as some Americans have continued to question the effectiveness of the COVID-19. You mean they've cited the ineffectiveness of it. 
We'll be back with more of Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Tired of the ever-inflating U.S. dollar? You can live your life on Dash instead with some handy websites. BitRefill.com has been accepting Dash for years and has a ton of big-name retailers and brands including grocers, gas stations, phone refills, Amazon, and even prepaid MasterCards. Plus, many of their gift cards are available at a discount. But what about paying your bills? Spritz.finance can do that, and they can send dollars to your bank account in case you still need those for some reason. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol, and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. <laughs> Free Talk Live. Welcome to Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, the creator of the Liberty Conspiracy, which you can watch or hear every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern on Rumble and Rockfin and on my Twitter, which is at Gard Goldsmith. Let's turn to our guest. It's time for the Mind Melt. Minds are merging, Doctor. Our minds are one. I feel what you feel. I know what you know. Oh, yes. And you know, folks, we talked about this allowance, this this great permission that someone might be able to get to be able to actually control his private property and offer it to people in the way that he wants. And when government gets involved, people, for some reason, don't want to start doing that kind of work. Well, as we saw over the past few days and over the weekend, if you saw my Sunday news assembly, Thomas Massey tried and failed to stop a very nasty proposal that will force car manufacturers in just a few years to have to put on their into their cars a performance measurer, a driving buddy, you might say, that uh, will, much like OnStar, allow the government to monitor you everywhere you go and will allow the government to make sure that you can't run your car anymore. It's going to be an awesome future. So let's bring in a man who has warned us about that kind of thing very often. He is, of course, Eric Peters of ericpetersautos.com. Find him on Twitter slash X at Libertarian Car G. And Eric, thanks for joining us on the program. You came through super fast, as I mentioned in my email when I sent you the link to come in. Maybe not as fast uh, for me to get this link to you as the 7-Ups, but I hope it got to you real quick, man. Thanks for joining us, dude. Oh, you bet. I'm trying to figure out what the latest thing I need to stand with is. Do you know? 
<laughs> well, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a, a big screen, sort of like the cone of silence from Get Smart, and it's going to come down with whatever flag is necessary. It'll come down right in front of me. You won't even see me. I'll just be, I'll do like hand puppets of like Zelensky. You know, it'll be fun. It'll be really, really good. It'll be sort of like, who is that that character, Lady Elaine on, on Mr. Rogers? She looked kind of like a witch and she operated the museum. <laughs> It'll be the land of make-believe. It'll be awesome. King Friday oh will be there. You know. It's been a long day, hasn't it? Yeah, that's for sure. That's now, for you sure. know, the business with, they call it the kill switch. And yes. know, Matthew tried, but unfortunately he wasn't able to get ahead of the narrative. And the way that this whole thing was framed, was that they were going to install in new cars beginning with the 26 model year uh, technology. That's how they phrase it. Uh, that would deal with impaired driving. That was the term that they used. And they did that deliberately because of the, the connotation and the association of that with drunk driving. Very hard to come out against something that's going to prevent those dangerous drunk drivers from getting out on the road. Right. 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 Uh, and, and that is, uh, why you had that uh, the rebuttal to Massey by uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who went on a tear about how irresponsible it was for Massey to attempt to derail something that would protect the public by keeping these dangerous impaired drivers off the road. But when you get into the nitty gritty of the actual language, you find that it actually doesn't talk about drunk driving. It talks right. about monitoring driver performance. And that's quite a different thing. Yep. Uh, you, know, you and I have talked often about the importance of dissecting the speech, the etymology that's used by these collectivists, by these these leftists. And this is a perfect case in point. Uh, what does performance mean? Well, it basically means any driving that falls outside of the parameters of acceptability, according to these leftists, these collectivists, right. these nanny state people. Uh, so, for example, driving faster than the speed limit is a measure of your performance. Uh, maybe you accelerate too aggressively. You change lanes too aggressively. All of these things are performance, attributes of performance. And you know, the cars are, are, are going to have this technology uh, beginning in 2026. And it's actually, I've got a piece that I'm going to publish tomorrow worse than that because a lot of new cars and cars made over the last five years already have elements of this technology embedded in them. You know, they are framed as driver assistance technologies, right? Yeah. But it's not ultimately about assisting you. It's about controlling you. Um, for example, they have something called uh, advanced speed limit assistance technology, and that's installed in practically every new car. And what that thing does is using the GPS, which tracks your vehicle as you go and has a map that, that correlates with you as you go down the road, including the speed limit on the road that you happen to be driving on at any particular time. Yeah. The car, the car knows what the speed limit is. The car knows how fast you're driving. And then there's a juxtaposition of those two things. And if you're driving faster than whatever the speed limit is, there's a little icon in the dashboard, a display that's made to look exactly like a speed limit sign, a little you know white background with black letters. And when you drive faster than the speed limit, it starts to flash an angry red, and sometimes it's accompanied by a chime. Now, right well, now, it's just a warning in this country. But right. in Europe, where they have mandated it, it actually throttles back. You push down on the accelerator pedal, and if your car is driving faster than the speed limit, it fights you. It pushes it back. Now, you can push through that for now, but the next step, as they habituate people to this, 
will be that no matter how hard you push on that gas pedal, you're not going to be able to drive any faster than whatever the speed limit is. And the reason for that is they already control the accelerator pedal. Uh, Eric, I can, can you imagine if somebody's in a situation, and this is just, I'm just looking at the practical side of it. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to get into the morality side of it or the constitutional side of it. The nightmares that this can introduce is somebody's trying to pass someone for an emergency, and you know how you got to go above the speed limit sometimes. And and people what often if you say, well, get out of the way? I, I, I can't even, I mean, that's what insane. If you enter an intersection and, and there's a semi that's barreling down on you at very high speed. Right. And you need to get out of the way. Now you can't. What a, that's, that's friggin' nuts, man. That's, they've been ingenious about this. This is a piece by piece thing. You know, the, it's, 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 it's a, a demonstration case of that old saw about the frog in the pot that water gradually gets turned up. Right. So for at least 10 years now, most cars have what's called drive by water throttle, which means you don't control the throttle anymore. Used to be back in the day, like my old muscle car that I have out in the garage, when I push down on the accelerator pedal, what I'm doing is applying tension to a cable. The cable goes back and forth and it works on the throttle arm and that increases or decreases the engine speed and that in turn causes your car to accelerate or not. Now in a modern car, when you're pushing down on the accelerator pedal, all you're doing is sending data to the computer, which measures the deflection of that of the, of the pedal going down and up interprets that and then tells the engine, okay, accelerate rev, uh, uh, you know, accordingly, you know, according to that. But the point is that the computer is in full control of your throttle. And then who controls the computer? These cars are all connected. Exactly. So it's just a matter of programming them and then sending updates to them to determine how you are allowed to drive the car. And it's not just the speed limit assist. The cars now have what's called brake assistance technology. Right, right. And, and the steering the assist, on. too. Sometimes All the steering it. assist. Piece by yeah. piece, the whole thing comes together. And what's going to happen is that you will be effectively reduced to being a passenger in what you used to consider to be your car. Holy smoke. Yeah, I just, I'm, we're just going to have to go with the Flintstone cars or Gilligan <laughs> vehicles. I mean, well, what, this isn't, do they want us in rickshaws? What the heck, man? Well, the whole, yeah, the whole point, there's two, a couple of points to this, I think, uh, in dissecting it. I think one is just their control freakism. They, they have never liked the idea of people yeah. like you and I, just ordinary people being in control of our personal vehicles right, and being right. able to drive them however we want to drive them, to go where we want to go, to not be supervised, to not be monitored, to not have to beg permission to go places. They hate that. No, you know, that's, 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 that's all oh, the pathology. They're so sociopathic. And of course, yeah. you know, I've often brought up just as a quick aside, I've often brought up that all polices, all political systems are sociopathic Absolutely. because society are those arrangements we create voluntarily that is society, as political philosophers understand, and the state can only exist by sucking out of the productive capacity of those social arrangements arrangements that we voluntarily create. So by definition, all state apparati, all polices are sociopathic. And this is the mm-hmm. mindset of these sociopathic overlords, these, these feudal, I, I mentioned last mm-hmm. night, uh, I don't know if you get to see it, Eric, but uh, David Knight had a great, great interview with um, with an author who had released a book yesterday all about the control freaks that are involved, like Klaus Schwab and all the others who want to have this sort of corporal crypto fascist world on us. And um, I just thought to myself, you know, 
we know that uh, economists from the past like Julian Simon or Warren Brooks tried to explain to people that the ultimate resource is the human mind. So all these people who tell us that they have to control the resources, they want to control the human mind. They want to stop us from discovering resources. They think that they've got all the answers. They're just such crazy sociopathic control freaks. It's out of control. One of the metrics, one of the ways that you can can prove that is that none of this is something that people have asked for. I, I don't know a single person who said, you know, I'd like to be able to buy advanced driver assistance technology and check the option box. This stuff is always imposed on people. You don't have a choice. It's foisted on you. The electric vehicle is another example. Yeah. I mean, granted, some people are buying them because they want to, but as a, as a generality, they are being pushed onto people uh, and they're being pushed on people in part by pushing the alternatives that people do want off the market. So, you know, that speaks to the psychopathic sociopathic, bullying nature of it you know the force that's behind it you know they couch it in all kinds of euphemisms but at the end of the day they're not trying to persuade you that hey this might be a good thing for you and if you think it is you're free to choose to buy it or use it no they're telling you you're going to have it and you're going to pay for it and that's the end of the discussion our guest is Eric Peters, everybody. You can find the website, ericpetersautos.com. Going to show you a picture of one of the uh, good people who tried to help sound the alarm on this. And as Eric says, this opens up. Uh, it's, a, it's a blossoming poison flower, this thing. Uh, and the entire m- mindset is absolute poison. But it goes all the way back to when they first started the CAPE standards, when Mm -hmm. they claimed that they could control the products that are being put out by auto manufacturers. And Eric, you make such a good point. If this stuff is so valuable, if people really want it, then it would be successful on the market, much like the EVs are shown they're not successful. And yeah, and the way one of the ways that they get away with this goes so far back in history. You know, I was talking about FISA, the Fourth Amendment and warrants and how people have this misguided idea that the Fourth Amendment only protects Americans when the Fourth Amendment is a proscription against all governments operating in a certain way, regardless of their targets. And that goes back to ancient days of the Magna Carta, common law traditions and judges who had to present something if they wanted the local jurisprudential uh, police force the local copper, the local magistrate to go do something, they had to make it public and they had to show the person they wanted to show was the target of their search. And this is a perfect example of that similar mindset to say, well, we can do whatever we want. It doesn't matter. People don't question these regulations. So FICE has been around since the 70s, just like the automobile CAFE standards have been around since that time. And yeah. people have just become accustomed to it. You're absolutely right. It is the boiling frog scenario. Mm-hmm. And people have to wake up and recognize that it's, and I pointed this out in my MRC TV piece, it's not just what the mandate is. It's the mandate concept itself that yeah. needs to be stopped. That's it. Oh. And also there's a there's an underlying premise here that people have gotten habituated to, have gotten used to, to get back to this impaired driving thing, which is that in the past, you had to have been convicted of drunk driving before you had to suffer an imposition as a result of that fact. So a person got convicted of drunk driving, and part of the punishment for that was that they had to have a uh, an interlock or a breathalyzer installed in their car 
that they had to blow into in order to be able to drive the car. And there was some justice in that, in that, okay, this person actually was convicted of drunk driving. But what's happening now is that we are all presumed to be drunk drivers or inept drivers or dangerous drivers or whatever it is. Even in the absence of, of any evidence that we are that thing, we are nonetheless to be treated that way, just like we're treated as presumptive terrorists when we attempt to fly commercially. You know, it's it's everything has been inverted. Western civilization it used to be based in part on the idea of having to establish guilt in a process before punishment. Right. Now the punishment is just applied to everybody. You know, why bother with due process? We'll just treat everybody like a criminal. And it reminds me, there was a, a, a crusade. I can't remember when it was, but I think it was like in the 13th or the 14th century. And I can't remember which pope it was, but they had besieged a a uh, uh, a town or a village of uh, of uh, that was housing some apostates, and uh, one of the one of the pope's underlings uh, said something like, "Well, we can't go in there because they're innocents, they're women and children." Uh, and the pope said famously, "Kill them all, God will know His own," and that's essentially the doctrine that we have now. You you are so right. Uh, they it, it's amazing. They they seem to claim sainthood. While we are all charged with original sin against the state. Yep. And as long as they can get into those halls, they're angels. They're St. Peter's. And they will tell us whether we can pass or we can't pass. Yep. It is vile. It's absolutely vile. And the thing that gets me going back into history again, Eric, and you and I have discussed this in the past, is, again, the blithe assumption that people have that, is at the root of much of this and whether or not they would get into regulating the cars, it would probably have happened. But the very idea that they can regulate the roads on which we drive, that they can claim the power to say, we know you want to get from point A to point B, but you want to go this way. So we're going to build the roads this way. And a lot of our friends who own the property along those routes, they're going to make a lot of money. So we're going to do that. And we're going to maintain the roads very poorly. And now uh, if you happen to, uh, be good enough and and sharp enough to get the license that we're going to issue, but we'll also issue it to a lot of other people who aren't as sharp. Sharp, we'll throw you all on the same roads so mm-hmm. that you'll have to go really, really slowly. Even though you're a good driver, you can't get on a private road and go someplace. But in addition to that, if you happen to want to dodge a pothole, nope, sorry, no, sorry, Debbie Wasserman Schultz <laughs> is going to throw something up your butt and tell you that you can't drive anymore. That's the kind of thing there. Debbie Wasserman Schultz might as well have billboards of her all along every road. Say, hi, I'm here watching you. (laughs) This is what it is. It's the eye in the sky, like uh, the Alan Parsons project or Judas Priest, the electric eye. Does it? Yeah. We need the hellion. That's what we need. I'd like to touch on this. You know, you talk about what had been previously our right to travel. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that the system has done uh, in addition to turning that into a conditional privilege, is making it so there really isn't any practical alternative to it. The, yeah, the state right. arrogates to itself all of the roads, which now become the government's roads. They call it public roads, but they're government roads. They're owned right. by the government. And yeah. you effectively have no alternative but to use these government roads, because how are you going to get anywhere? You have to use the government's roads, right? right. And right. so once they've done that, they've got you cornered, and they can apply all these conditions to your conditional privilege, to something that used to be considered and was an inherent right of free people to travel freely. And again, you know, it goes back, and I'll say this again, if if people are new to uh, the program, um, a long time ago, I wrote an article about Rod Rod Stewart 
who got together with some of his friends. He lives on a dirt road, uh, one of his houses, but the little house that he has, he has a bunch of neighbors on his street. You know, it's it's a, just a dirt road, stone walls next to it. Looks a lot like a lot of the roads around New Hampshire where I grew up. And um, he went out with his buddies and they fixed all the divots in the road because, as you know, especially on dirt roads, once you get one of those divots, you get the resonant frequency yeah. from the springs of the cars and they make more divots down the line. You get the the, the, the ruts. So um, they went out and they just started fixing stuff. And so I, I did a bunch. I already had a bunch of the knowledge, but I did extra research and I found out that one of the earliest tax protests in British history had to do with the fact that. And if you're new to the show, this is information for you. If you're, you know, folks have, have seen the show before, but the original roads, as you know, Eric, they were common passageways amongst the people who were the Angles, the Saxons, Irish did the same sort of thing where they had. They had a system of land that was run by farmers before the enclosure movement came in and took a lot of that land away and got it taken over by the royally connected uh, dukes and so on, especially after the Norman conquest through for hundreds of years. They kept taking more of this land. But before the royals took that land and set up their their little network of all their fiefdoms and their friends and their blood ties, a lot of the common people had their farmlands. And based on reputation and friendliness for neighbors and things like that, some of those people would open up right, uh, basically access routes for their neighbors. And so their neighbors could get their stuff to the town village area where they could sell their stuff and they would travel back and forth. And those people who didn't participate in opening up some of those passageways, and there are still some of them. I walked through one in Bath to get to a little pub. It was wonderful it was like going through a secret garden it was the most beautiful Mm -hmm. thing and um it was great and as the brits the british government under the norman conquest mentality started to take over they started to then say and and the people locally took care of those roads they would just go and take care of them they keep the weeds off they'd make sure those ruts were taken care of and so on and eventually the royals said no we're going to take over these roads and rather than allowing you to maintain these things, we're going to tax you. And now we're going to have your money taking care of the roads and we're just going to charge you. So it was just a way to get money from them. The people said, well, we'll take care of the roads. Just leave us alone. We've been doing it for hundreds of years. What is this? It's the same sort of thing. And again, if people don't think that you can get private roads in the United States, I'll, I'll direct them towards the Mm -hmm. history uh, that Thomas D. Lorenzo offers uh, in how uh, how capitalism saved America. I've got it in my Live for Your Die book as well. Thousands and thousands of privately created roads in the uh, pre-American Revolution era on through the Revolutionary era until as decades went along, some of the people who built the roads and some of the local politicians, some of the people especially who had the road building skills, realized that rather than freely offering to buy property and seeing whether or not somebody wanted to, if they could make friends with the politicians, the politicians could seize the land through eminent domain and then hire them to do the road paving work themselves. So it was all political. It was, yeah, it was, it was fascism and corruption. And now we've got, yeah, we've got them running the roads. They're oftentimes not safe. The bridges are collapsing 
And it's amazing to see they'll they'll promote these these things highly when they first put them out there and then they let them fall to rot. If if people think that people can't create roads themselves, how do parking um, how do uh, shopping malls create vast parking lots? Why is it that those are always plowed first and salted and sanded? Uh, It's just I mean, how are we too stupid? I've said this before. We too dumb to create drive driveways to our house. I don't know how to get to the road. I guess the government's going to have to do it. On Free Talk Live, we're bringing people to the ideas of liberty every day. From wrestling superstars like Glenn Jacobs. You guys really are having an impact, I believe. Like I said, uh, a lot of where I am now is due to listening to Free Talk Live. You changed my mind on some very important issues years ago. To random people tuning in on the radio. I was kind of stuck in the left-right paradigm. I heard your show by chance on a Saturday night. From there, I went on, joined the Free State Project, and become an amplifier. So, I mean, that's really the reason why I amp is uh, because I know that if it wasn't for you guys being on as many stations as you are, I never would have found the ideas of liberty. You can help more people hear the message of liberty by joining Free Talk Live's AMPS program on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. And you'll get access to special perks. Visit amps.freetalklive.com, amps.freetalklive.com. Free Talk Live. We return with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Continuing our conversation with Eric Peters of ericpetersautos.com. It's a dissonant thing, and it's stuff that seems evidently, or to me, is is common sense. Just and probably to you, and probably to most of the people listening, it doesn't seem to register. One thing that doesn't is the way that by doing by giving these things the power of well, by letting the state acquire the power to do these things, you accept this unilateral, arbitrary, one size fits all solution over which you have no control at all, and it becomes entirely unreasonable. You know, to get to it, to get to the, the back to this business of the government regulations, you know, most people think and I agree it's reasonable to, uh, to to control the emissions of a vehicle such that there aren't meaningful harms caused as a result of those emissions. But what we've got now is essentially kind of like what they have in China with the zero covid policies, zero emissions, zero covid. It's insane. You know, cost exactly. no object to pursue and- a fanatical goal that is completely divorced from any objective, meaningful harm that might be actually caused. That's crazy. And that can only happen when there's force behind it, because if there weren't force behind it, people would say, I'm not signing on to that. That's absurd. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fund that. And you know, your, your analogy to the COVID lockdown mythology that they put forward and the jab mythology, that's a perfect example because we have the so-called concept of public health. And of course, who will define what is health? The government. Who will define who can be sacrificed for the greater good? The government. 
So individual health is really what we all have. There is no public health. That is something where they will usurp our ability to be able to control our lives. They will define what is health and they will sacrifice people according to the larger good, whatever population they think that that is. So we don't blend into other people. We are still individuals. But that mindset where they're the ones who can define the terms, well, they can define it any way they want. Same thing with the road safety. Same thing with the emissions. And this brings me, Eric, back to the concept of uh, direct liability for people and tortious claims. Yep. Uh, again, if so, if you had if you had a company that was making a product and it was emitting some sort of gas that was literally poisonous to people and it was readily recognizable, then clearly those people who were being harmed by the person using that product could sue the person using the product, especially if the person was aware, they could bring a tortious claim to say, I have been harmed. I was almost killed by your whatever it is. You know, then they could also, through joint and several liability, bring suit to the manufacturer to say, you created this thing that put me in danger and you didn't make people aware of the dangers. Now, that's different, of course, than something operating the way it's supposed to, like a firearm, right? Which, as we know, they're generally used more for defense anyway. But that's the thing. In a preemptory fashion, first, they misread the Interstate Commerce Clause, and James Madison tried to warn people it was state-on-state action, not individuals selling stuff over state borders. It was supposed to be about tariffs and states blocking tariffs, and it was a remedial way where they could go in after the fact that there was a dispute between states, that they were putting up trade barriers, they could go in and try to resolve it in Congress. But now, of course, especially since they started the so-called trust busters, They've been moving with this idea that anything that goes over state borders from person to person, company to company can be regulated. And before anything has even gone wrong, they can tell you what to put into your product. And it is, uh, again, Mussolini would be proud. The fascists, I mentioned again, you know, you brought it up last week, the fascists at the Lincoln Memorial. The fascists would be delighted by this stuff. This is exactly their worldview because it gives all the politicians power. Yep. You bring up the issue of harms caused and, you know, you can you can begin at the level of a traffic offense. You know, it's no longer necessary to prove that uh, the accused has 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 injured anyone or uh, caused damage to anybody's property. It's it's sufficient merely that this person has transgressed a statute, whatever the statute is, however arbitrary it is. And most of us have fallen prey to this at one time or another. We've been pulled over by a cop and given a ticket for some nonsense like speeding you know, or, or uh, making a right turn uh, on red that was perfectly safe to make. Right. And we know we feel abused. We know we didn't do anything wrong in our right. gut, in our heart, in our mind, morally speaking. We didn't do anything. Right. And yet, you know, we're put through this process where we're, 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 we're made to feel as if we're, quote, unquote, guilty, and then we're punished for something that we didn't do. Right. You know, if, 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 you're, if, you, if you're not a psychopath and you caused harm, you know, whether it's to – uh, a person's physical body or their property, you are sorry about it. You regret that you did that. It probably wasn't intentional. You messed up and you accept that you are responsible for that. And you, you, you don't chafe at being made to pay. You don't, probably wouldn't even be made to. You would say, yeah, you know, I messed up. You know, yeah, I, I owe right. you. I, I hear right. I'm, I'm going to make you whole. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pay you back, whatever, whatever it might be. 
And, and really, that ultimately is what justice ought to be with regard to the regulations. And he scaled this up. And remember when Volkswagen got crucified over the cheating on government emissions certification tests? Right. I, 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 you know, I had some communication at the time with people within the company. I can't talk about who they were, but I was begging them, will you please spend some money on public relations and, and TV ads and explain to people what's going on here and demand that the government prove or bring forth somebody who was actually harmed, a person, somebody right. who exactly. was harmed by what was done here and, and, and explain that to people. And they didn't. And instead, uh, they put on the hair shirt. They flagellated themselves, you know, and now they are, uh, you know, they're amongst the, 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 the tip of the spear in, 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 in pushing this electrification thing as their kind of uh, mea culpa for, you know, the sin of having cheated on government certification tests. Eric, I don't know. Uh, we're, we're speaking with Eric Peters. It's Eric Peters Autos. I want to show you the site again. And uh, I, I've got my piece up there from the, the piece I wrote for November 14th. Uh, it came out about Congressman Massey and Eric, I don't know if I mentioned this to you in text. We got all sorts of hassles from NewsGuard about that. Mm -hmm. I was, I think it was Monday morning. I don't know how much time I spent going back and forth with the editors and it's all hyperlinked. All the information's there. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, let's show Eric's, uh, Eric's site again, ericpetersautos.com. I love the image that you've got there for a safe and secure society. <laughs> The emperor, or the soon-to-be emperor, then senator. Palpatine. It's so tediously predictable that you know that whenever they come out with whatever their latest tyrannical decree is, it's always to keep us safe, to protect the public health. Uh, yeah. You know, always that—that's the kind of the demagoguery that they use. And I keep hoping and praying that eventually people are going to see through this and, and begin to dissect it without you know having to wait a year, three, four, five before they finally figure it out. And, you know, you talk about demagoguery, and I think one of the things that really gets me, Eric, is and it, it it's an interesting it can be a distraction and and draw people's focus a little bit too much. But it's always for me, it's always mixed into an incentive to then look deeper and try to grasp some long term lessons. So we've got all these different characters, these different despicable figures like Debbie Wasserman Schultz. We see her in battle with Thomas Massey. And if you don't mind, I'd love to play a little bit of that no, on the floor it's, it's of the a, house. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great stuff. And and then we see Thomas Massey being the honest dealer. He is. He comes out with screenshots on his Twitter X feed and says, here, here's the legislation from 2021 that I was trying to amend to stop. You tell me what it is. That's the stuff that NewsGuard went after me for. I'm like, I'm just citing what is in the yep. bill. I, I'm literally hyperlinking to his picture of the bill. And you're giving me a hassle now. Because they don't want me to write. It's right. just, it's so stupid. Yep. So the thing, the thing that comes to mind is we can get caught up with these unctuous figures like Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And then we can fold into that, what we know about her background, how she was heading up the DNC. So that lends itself to the credibility of being very skeptical of Debbie Wasserman Schultz because she yep. has such a bleak background. But in addition to that, it shouldn't even matter what her background is. It just tells you how what a, a dishonest dealer she is. And it just fits in again with the pattern of behavior that we see from people who tend to be pro-freedom and people who are not. Because the people who are not pro-freedom, they don't care whether they lie to you. Yep. They don't they just don't give a flying crap. Yep. So, yeah, let's uh, let's go to your site and check that out, Eric. Um, I love the fact that you've got this is from Forbes. Yeah. 
this is the Forbes piece, and they do a pretty good job covering a lot of the hearings and things like that. Mm -hmm. So shall we click on that one? Let's do it. All right, here we go. In part B of House Report 118-261, for what purpose does a gentleman from Kentucky seek recognition? Mr. Chair, I have an amendment at the desk. The clerk will designate the amendment. Amendment number 60, printed in Part B of House Report number 118-261, offered by Mr. Massey of Kentucky. Pursuant to House Resolution 838, the gentleman from Kentucky, Mr. Massey, and a member opposed each will control five minutes. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Kentucky. Mr. Chair, I rise in support of my amendment, which states none of the funds made available by this act may use, be used to implement Section 24220 of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. My amendment is simple. It will defund the federal mandate that requires all new vehicles after 2026 be equipped with a kill switch that can disable a vehicle if the vehicle has monitored the user's, the driver's performance and that the vehicle determines that the driver is not performing well. It's so incredible that I have to offer this amendment. It almost sounds like the domain of science fiction, dystopian science fiction, that the federal government would put a kill switch in vehicles that would be the judge, the jury, and the executioner on such a fundamental right as the right to travel freely. But here we are. It is, it is federal law that this is mandated, and so I am offering this amendment to defund this mandate. And with that, I reserve the balance of my time. Gentlemen reserves, for what purpose does the gentleman from Illinois seek recognition? Mr. Chairman, I claim time in opposition. The gentleman is, is recognized. Mr. Chairman, I yield one minute to the gentleman from Florida, the ranking member of the Military Construction and Veterans Affairs Subcommittee, Ms. Wasserman Schultz. The gentlewoman is recognized. Uh, I thank the gentleman for yielding. I, I actually need two minutes, if that's possible, Mr. Chairman. We'll do two minutes, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. The gentlewoman is recognized. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Lobbying in mid. I just want to pause it there, Eric, to mention that we're paying for those minutes. Mm -hmm. We are mm -hmm. slaves to their entertaining tongue wagging. <laughs> in in mid, mid sentence, um, I rise in opposition to this amendment. Uh, let me be clear this, this, the act that the gentleman is trying to defund does not require auto manufacturers to install kill switches. It does not do that. Passive drunk driving technology is a vital tool in safeguarding our loved ones and other innocent people on our roads. So I'll pause it right there, of course, Eric, because her implication is that if you oppose this, then you're in favor of drunk driving. Of course. Just like if you Just, oppose you know, having your wife or your girlfriend groped at the airport, then you are in favor of letting terrorists hijack airplanes. Uh, just it's just insufferable. It is unbelievable. And uh, the the thing is that she just outright lies. You know, uh, it, you know, she she tries to use different terminology. And Thomas Massey and I've got a hyperlinked in my piece. Thomas Massey hyperlinked and showed in his Twitter feed the actual amendment and his uh, and the actual original. Uh, document from 2021. I, I wrote down here, I said, uh, indeed, after Schultz made her claim, Massey delivered the goods, posting on Twitter slash X images of the actual statute from 2021, confirming that indeed the mandated tech would, quote, prevent or limit motor vehicle operation if impairment is detected. And of course, the government, and as I noted, the government is in charge of what level 
of something is an impairment. They will demand these things. And they're the ones who are already imposing so many problems on us that we can't even drive freely. They even want to know our biometric information on our driver's so-called licenses. Why do we have to have a driver's license? Because Because they run the roads. You know, they use that word license, which is implied. The implication there is it's a test or it's, it's a measure of competence that you have somehow demonstrated your ability to competently operate a motor vehicle. But as anybody who has gone through the driver licensing procedure in the last 30 years know, it's, it's nothing of the kind. You know, you do a pro forma little, little thing in the back of the DMV and mostly it's about uh, a questionnaire about traffic laws and fundamentally it's about ID. Fundamentally it's about having the state's permission to drive. It's nothing like having a private pilot's license, for example, which you, in order to get that, you actually have to demonstrate that you can safely and competently fly an airplane. There's nothing, right. nothing analogous to that with regard to a driver's license. And again, if people, if we had private roadways, you could have, as you and I have discussed, you could have different levels of drivers who might be very, very good drivers and want to go very fast. You could have older, slower people who want to go slow on certain roads. You could have even markets that are made for those things. And the people who run those things could have liability based on their own insurance, which is necessary to make sure that they have upkeep of the roads and that they only allow those types of people onto the roads. It's very, very simple. And all of it would be voluntary. And, you know, Eric, we talk about our, our ability to move, our ability to transmit ourselves from one place to another. If I could, I would love to get your thoughts as a libertarian and one of the best out there who puts out information about all sorts of subjects on freedom. We had last week, November 5th, I had a piece released from MRC TV about Joe Biden's AI executive order. And I said, listen, this pertains, and I mentioned this last night, this pertains not just to so-called artificial intelligence as people might see it as, well, I'm going to have artwork made and it might be pulling information from copyrighted uh, copyrighted material. Not about that. This is about any software program, any algorithm that is created by anybody in the United States, they must report under this new executive order. And I've got it quoted. I've got the pertinent sections quoted. I'll show show everybody on the screen. And I've got a video about it that I showed previously on the show. Um, I, I mentioned that this executive order actually openly states that if it can be used for so-called dual use purposes, which means for military or civilian purposes, then the government will require, and I have it right here, within 90 days of the date of this order, to ensure and verify the continuous availability of safe, reliable, and effective AI in accordance with the so-called Defense Production Act. And that's the one that they used for the jabs. They keep doing this. Oh, it's for national security. As amended under the Title 50 of the U.S. Code, including for the national defense, the Secretary of Commerce shall require companies developing or demonstrating an intent to develop potential dual-use foundation models to provide the federal government on an ongoing basis, however often they want. I mean, the principle's already broken, but then they can just continue to hassle people with information, reports, or records regarding the following. Completely contrary to the Fourth Amendment. We talked about FISA before. Then 
They say any ongoing or planned activities related to training, developing, or producing dual-use foundation models, including the physical and cybersecurity protections, literally the physical locks and the cyber protections that you might have for taking this process and making sure that it's it's protected against sophisticated threats. So the government will determine whether you're protecting. They will ask you a demand from you that you supply them this information without any warrants whatsoever. So the transmission of us on the roads is mirrored by this AI with his claim through executive action to control our transmission of information on the internet. And they're the ones who are going to say, give it to us, give us all this stuff. Again, it's like licensure. You will get permission to do this, but that is up to us. It's not up to the marketplace. Right. And they use terminology like, you know, this vague lingo, which is deliberate, dual use. What does that mean? Well, it means right. any use that they decide is dual use, right? Right. And when they say AI, I mean, it sounds to me like that would encompass essentially any kind of technology, any program. Uh, any software that you might be running so that they have a backdoor so that they have access to it. And so, of course, they can control it. So, again, you're reduced to being a conditional user who's granted certain privileges that can be rescinded at any time. You're no longer the owner of anything. Exactly. I mean, if you if you draw the logic down to it, binary code zeros and ones is dual use. It's universal use. Right. So um, it just it opens it opens such a Pandora's box. And today, Eric, I got this from the high wire and uh, I want to share it with you now on the program. I was going to do it in a separate piece, but everything ties together here because we're talking about the free flow of us, the free flow of information, and that devilish FCC, which started as the FRC, the Federal Radio Commission. And as I've noted in the history of the FRC, and I, I read a lot of that stuff uh, a number of probably about two months ago, the history of the FCC and how it was created and how it blocked television that could have come around four years earlier and played favorites with radio uh, station owners to stop television from coming in because they didn't want the competition. This is from Dell Bigtree's team at ICANN. He says, the FCC just voted to take control of the internet. Now, as I mentioned in the opening of the program, Eric, uh, we know that they've been pushing to reinstate this dumb so-called and, you know, absolutely uh, Orwellian titled net neutrality, which yeah. would make it impossible for internet providers, cable companies, and so on to be able to charge a little bit more for people who want faster internet, which disincentivizes them from going through the discovery and research process to actually give us better stuff. It's just so stupid. Uh, but then they said, so they have here, the FCC just voted to take control of the Internet. And this ties in. And I think it was timed this way. I think Biden put out his AI thing last week to dovetail with this new announcement from the now Democrat controlled three to two FCC, which is patently unconstitutional. The FCC voted today on a plan that gives the federal government full control over the Internet. The plan passed by three to two margin, of course, a press release posted immediately after the meeting stated in part, quote, under the new rules, the FCC can investigate possible instances of discrimination of broadband access, according to them, as they define it, 
work with companies to solve problems. In other words, call them in if they want to hassle them or give them special benefits if they're friendly to the FCC or perhaps they ideologically are friendly to the FBI or they play the way that Facebook did or Twitter did in silencing people like you and me. Instances of so-called discrimination of broadband access work with companies to solve problems facilitate, there's a wonderful euphemism, facilitate (laughs) mediation and when necessary, penalize companies for violating the rules. What are the rules? The FCC will review customer complaints of digital discrimination of access through an improved consumer complaint portal and staff will meet monthly to assess trends in complaint patterns. Finally, the commission adopted model policies and, oh, again, that wonderful term that is inside and poses instead of the death panel, they call it the best practices panel inside Obamacare. They will promote and adopt model policies and best practices that will support states, local and tribal governments, why they have anything to do with tribal governments. They're supposed to be separate nations. So I, I did about two hours on the Indian treaties that were abrogated last, that were abrogated by the feds last night. Uh, mm-hmm. They weren't abrogated last night. Last night, I did about two hours on this, Eric. And I tried to uh, analogize that uh, as a, make it sort of a cipher for what was going on with the Gazans and the Israelis and all the agreements that they've abrogated and, uh, and how they've been pushed off their land and things like that. Uh, in an effort to combat digital discrimination. So that, I think, pulls in the net neutrality stuff, but it, 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 it metastasizes it. It makes it anything they want. Well, it's the next step. You know, we all have become very aware of the way the federal government colluded with the, uh, the tech giants, with, with Google and with YouTube and Facebook and, and Twitter uh, to suppress what they would style misinformation, which is essentially synonymous with anything they don't like, uh, anything that they disagree with, even if it's true. Yeah. But that's not enough. You know, they know that they haven't got control of people like you and I who have an independent platform who don't operate through one of these uh, giant entities like Twitter uh, or Facebook. So I foresee that they're going to use this sort of legislation and authority that they're arrogating uh, to throttle us. You know, and to do things like, uh, I don't know, them apply some kind of a fairness doctrine. Can you imagine them doing something like that? Wherein oh, yeah. someone like myself who has a, a website where I'm obliged to publish uh, points of view uh, that are contrary to the ones that, that I express on the site. At my expense, of course, on my platform. There's more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live coming up. We return with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live, continuing our conversation with Eric Peters of ericpetersautos.com. Absolutely right. And of course, a little drop of history here. That's what made Rush Limbaugh huge when at the end of the Reagan administration, the FCC dropped again the Orwellianly titled so-called fairness doctrine that the FCC had imposed for so long and driven opinions off the radio. Because as you know, if they're creating the tragedy of the commons in radio saying you've got to be open to everything, what's going to happen? You're going to get nothing. 
You're going to get absolute drivel, gruel for the brain. That's all it's going to be. And that's exactly what we see in schools. Anything the government touches gets everybody arguing about how it's going to be run. As you know, you get the tragedy of the commons, and then they start driving away all the good stuff. That's the way it works for healthcare because you can't get everything that you want. That's the way it works for land. That's the way it works for agencies. That's the way it works for schools. And this is exactly the same thing. If they impose another sort of so-called fairness doctrine, they will see opinions driven off the air and they'll apply it to the Internet, which is exactly what they want to do. And in a, uh, in a way, I think what they're they're really attempting to do here is make it very, very tricky and start getting corporations to do it themselves. Sure. Uh, and what's going to happen, I think, in, in, a, in a broad sense, is what happened in uh, the old Soviet Union in the countries of Eastern Europe during the Soviet era, which was that everything that was good went underground. They yeah. had something in the, in the East Bloc called the Samistat. You know, that was the underground press, which was distributed by hand, you know, under the table. Because everybody knew the Pravda, you know, the official organ of the of the Soviet uh, uh, ruling uh, uh, apparat, which yeah. which meant truth was falsehood. Everybody knew yeah. that. And right, so, right. in order to find any truth, you had to read these 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 subversive underground publications. That's what's happening now. And in order to get good things, like you know, if you want raw milk, you kind of have to go, you know, wink, nod, find you know, find somebody who's willing to sell it to you illegally under the table. And, you know, that's what, what's happening. It's, it's the inversion of everything. Like the state corrupts everything that it touches such Absolutely. that honest people end up having to become technically under the law outlaws. In order and, to and, and, and I'll just say again, you know, it incentivizes not only uh, the black market, but it fools people into thinking they're being protected, just like the FDA does when it block certain things, which if they, there's a great book that Robert Higgs edited for the Independent Institute years ago called Hazardous to Our Health. And in it, they have different essays about how many lives have been lost because the FDA caused such delays for products that if we were free, we could have tried them or not tried them. We could have listened well, to our doctors or not. Just who, like runs with the the, FDA? who runs the FDA? Yeah. <laughs> the pharmaceutical companies run the exactly. FDA. Exactly. So ivermectin, I was talking with a guy a little bit earlier uh, uh, around my area. I was out a little bit earlier. I said, how you doing? And he said, oh, you know, I was like, you know, I've been having some problems with headaches and stuff like that. And, and I was like, you know, I, I get a little tired out and stuff. And um, and he said, uh, said, oh, yeah, you know, that with COVID, that's what happened to me. He said, uh, uh, you know, I was like, well, you know, uh, if you ever have a problem in the future, just remember, get some ivermectin. He goes, what's ivermectin? I was like, well, ivermectin was the stuff that was it could have been used for parallel use, but they wouldn't allow it because they if they had allowed it, they couldn't have the jabs out there, the mRNA jabs under the emergency use stuff to be protected and so on by their dumb uh, protections against liability. And he goes, oh, wow. And I was like, yeah. So I gave him some websites and stuff like that. I was like, you know, have it on hand. You know, if you can't get ivermectin, get some prednisone. Take that yeah. as an anti-inflammatory real quick. Get your corsetin, get your zinc. And it's amazing to see that this insulates people into thinking they're being protected. And yeah. then they will define, again, what is safe driving? What is not safe driving? We can't test these things. They won't let us. You, you remember that example, Eric? I think we spoke about this, where the folks at the Reason Foundation uh, brought their, their cars out on the, the, what was it, the 404 uh, or something like that out in uh, around L.A. And they all went at exactly the speed yeah. limit. Yep. And it caused absolute mayhem. People were going yeah. in the breakdown lanes trying to get around them. 
And they had to stop because they realized they're putting people's lives in danger. So we can see already that the state is not conforming to what is natural to the people who are actually using the thing, the road. Well, what's natural is, is learning what works and learning what doesn't. One size does not fit all. We're individuals and we have different capacities. We have different frailties, different strengths. So yeah. what, you know, as, as we grow up as kids, we learn, we explore, we find out, you know, we apply reason and logic and experience so that we can make sense of the world. They're attempting right. to deprive us of that and, and treat us as if we're all essentially NPCs, you know, non-playable characters, the same widget, no difference. We're all the same and one size fits all and don't question it. Uh, don't do anything differently. Wait to be told what to do. Defer to authority. Authority knows best. You remind me, Eric, of, and this is some spoilers for people who haven't read 1984. Of course, the the big battle is the battle of wills between O'Brien and Winston Smith, the protagonist. And O'Brien, of course, looking like he's a friend for Winston Smith and then revealing that he's not. He's a torturer and he's and he's suckered Winston Smith to reveal himself. And then they bring him into the torture room and they constantly say, how many fingers am I holding up? What's two plus two? You know, that's the theme. When we say that two plus two is five, we know uh, that when you agree with us, we know we've won. You have to believe it. You will believe it. And in a way, what we've got here, as horrific as that was for people who were reading that at the time, I read it in 1983, 84. We graduated. I graduated high school in 84. So it was a big deal for us. You know, that that date itself was big. And um, but what's what's interesting is this is a very soft sort of. Uh, you know, people often say, is it more like Aldous Huxley or yeah. is it uh, like Orwell? Yeah. In a way, it's both as, as you know, most people probably uh, in liberty circles understand that. But in a way, what we're seeing here is they already, their mindset already assumes that we can't take care of ourselves. It sees us either as daft and stupid or as the enemy of what they think is the safest, best world. It goes, it, you know, it's it's all the technocratic view. It's the it's the uh, it's the Masonic and, you know, uh, Illuminatus view that they're the enlightened ones. It's the Klaus Schwabians. It's all those control freaks who want to impose on us their eugenics world to only have the best and so on. The best for uh, for all of us, as they say. And what's fascinating is that their assumption that people can't control themselves has now been embraced by so many people who think these these parts of the machine, these apparatus, as you say, will operate fine. They are the machine that will continue to operate and they don't have to have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's very troubling to me to see that people have accepted their fate in this way. And it doesn't have to be their fate. It's being imposed on them. They're being turned into sheep. But it's been imposed on them in the most devilishly and subtle way imaginable, such that they don't even have any awareness of it. You know, you and I, uh, people our age and older, have something to compare the present with that was very different than the present. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The the crowd that has grown up, say, in the last 30 years, uh, they grew up in a very different world. They did not have the comparison. And think about uh, just something like uh, the experience of flying commercially. Right. You know, they have no memory of a time when you could just go to an airport at the last minute, literally, yeah, you know, go up right, to the counter right. and pay cash for a ticket without showing an ID and then go running to the gate and just get on the airplane. 
It's an unimaginable thing to them. They, they have grown up with the experience of the way it is now. So for them, that's normal. You and I have talked before about how kids who grew up in the safety seat era grew up conditioned to regard cars as dangerous and that the natural state of things is to be passive, to sit in a seat strapped right. in. Right, you know, right, right, jump right. Car, hey, this is fun. This is freeing. You know, this is actually cloistering and suffocating and controlling. And, and, right. and it's cool. they tell kids, you know, if somebody hits you, you know, bully comes up and punches you in the nose. You don't defend yourself. There's zero tolerance. You know, you go, you know, go crying to the uh, the teacher and go to the principal and then they'll take care of it. You know, right, uh, right, they're, right. They're, they're fostering impotence and dependence and infantilism. They, they don't want competent people. And this gets into the maliciousness of it. It's it's not that they are benevolent and think that we're just so stupid and so helpless that they need that we need their wise guidance, their helping hand. It's malicious. They have contempt for us. Yes, they yes. Us. They look and upon us as cattle. You know, cattle to be led to the abattoir ultimately. And it's interesting because at the same time that we hear the word pride, you know, tossed around like so much confetti. Uh, the people out there are losing their flexibility. They're losing their ability to be able to control themselves. They're being turned into the cogs in the machine. They're being turned into the vassals. Um, and, and they don't seem to, as you see, as you note, they have no frame of reference anymore because it's been so long since people. And again, that's why, that's one of the reasons why I try to speak out about the FCC. People just, again, they just, they just, coolly accept it they accept that this is how it works and you know eric i i brought this up a little bit to you before you know um, my dad was was a gearhead and you know worked in a garage as a teenager ended up in his late 60s going back to work at mr goodwrench when he lost his job you know he'd come back to have his coveralls and stuff and i used to go into the car and you know watch him as a little kid and stuff like that my my as i mentioned to you one of my buddies a couple a couple members of his family became auto mechanics and stuff and um it's it's fascinating because um, to me this connection to the technology, this connection to what is leverage, what does a gear do, what are the simple mm-hmm. machines, these sorts of things, this understanding of what is at the heart of these things. There's a great book, the way things work. It opens with the simple machines, right? Sure. Goes all the way into space travel and and you know having to having to get rid of the heat out in space and things like that. How do you do it? Um, so all these things to me. As technology has gotten better, it's become easier for people to survive and live without actually knowing some of the ways that things work. Now, we have a lot of people who really dig into computer programs, much like understanding the way the gears work and so on and so forth. But they don't dig into the political machinations and the principles behind individual liberty that are the basic machines for human interaction. They don't understand how those work. They're totally disconnected from those things. It's true. yeah, they don't they don't they don't even understand that all of the blessings that we have, we stand on the shoulders of giants and those giants aren't some grand philosophers. They're just people who engaged in resource discovery, in division of labor and in trade. And that that was it. That was all. I think and part we get, of the reason for this has to do with the the hyper organization and hyper socialization of people that has occurred over the past 30 years, I'd say. Yes. When yes, you and yes, I were yes. kids, what happened after we got home from school, generally speaking? Oh, we yeah, went out, outside. We the neighborhood. We hung out with our friends. It yeah. was freestyle. 
You know, uh, maybe you played a sport, but you weren't constantly going from one scripted activity to the next, to the next, to the next, such that you essentially had no free time to be on your own to think and to develop and to learn the world and to acquire a sense of yourself as an individual who is competent as an individual to assess and deal with the external world. You know, now everything is about being part of a group and waiting to see what the group does and whatever the leader of the group tells you to do. That's what they've done. They've succeeded in collectivizing the culture. Boy, this is, um, this is such a, let me, let me hop over to the Rockfin chat and so on. And Eric, I don't want to keep you too long. Eric Peters is our guest folks. And by the way, if you're listening to this later on the free talk live broadcast across GCN, please visit Eric Peters website because it is terrific. He's got videos embedded. Oftentimes he does test drives of new new car products. Talks a lot about the dangers of EVs. He's been so on top of that stuff. The regulatory schema that has been thrown upon people. It's ericpetersautos.com. And, of course, follow him on Twitter at LibertarianCarG. And for those of you who are watching live, let me hop into Rockfin and Rumble, Eric, and uh, offer folks the opportunity to uh, join us in live chat with any concepts or ideas that they wanted to bring up and maybe I missed. Uh, Rockfin and Rumble, feel free to drop your comments in there. I'll give you just a couple seconds here. Uh, LT Oracle of Truth says, love Eric. Excellent, excellent. So right, so right. And um, uh, Narrow Way, Narrow Gate, uh, Narrow Gate Ministries on Rumble, Eric says, My, a horse, a horse. My kingdom for a horse. <laughs> yep. Hey, speaking so, of that, uh, I'm hoping I'm going to be able to do this tomorrow. It's all a question of being able to find the time. I've been promising I'm going to do this for days now, uh, but I'm going to give my uh, my Trans Am's rear tires a Viking funeral. Really? Yep. They're old. They're 20 years old. They're practically bald. So the oh, time man. has come to, 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 to fry them down to the cords and I've got a new set I'd show you right here sitting. I've got a new set of tires right here uh, that I'll, I'll mount afterwards. But I'm going to go out and just uh, do a little mini tactical nuke burnout. And, <laughs> that'll and, be awesome. And, and that, put that up oh, on the site. That would be, that'll be crazy. Uh, yeah. Um, no necklacing, though, right? No necklacing. Not. I'm a little no Yeah. Winnie, what's that? I only burn tires, not people. Yeah, I know. Winnie Mandela is not a neighbor, right? Yeah. No, <laughs> let's uh, let's. That's awesome. Uh, are you going to get that on video, Eric? You're going to shoot oh, that? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, great. Okay, cool. All right. So Audi MRR Modern Retro Radio is there, and uh, uh, Taylor Saunders is there. He says, uh, "Let me just check this over." My friend's truck told him to keep his eyes on the road. He was looking for an address and kept looking away. He didn't even know it was a program in the truck at all. I wonder what manufacturer that was. Thank you, Taylor, for that comment. And um, and uh, Jason Barker says, have fun cleaning all the rubber off the car, Eric. I will. <laughs> you know, my friend who had the uh, the Chevelle that's yeah. worth like 150 grand now, that very rare Chevelle. Yeah. I remember, man, outside high school, he would do break stands. And you just you're like, oh. Kevin's out there doing another break stand. It was crazy what he would do. He was a good driver too. He, he was he was much like Dustin Hoffman. I'm a, I'm a good driver. I'm definitely definitely a good driver. Um, let's see. Um, let's see. Um, okay. 
Um, oh, I, I'm not sure if this is a question for Eric. Oh, yes, yes, it is. So, Eric, Brian Taylor is in the in the Rockfin chat, and he says, what are Eric's thoughts about our constitutional system? What does he think about the anarchist perspective, voluntarist anarchist perspective? Well, you know, anarchism and libertarianism, there's a lot of overlap there. And my best understanding of anarchism is essentially what it, what it means literally, which is uh, the absence of government. Uh, I'm all for that. You know, I, I prefer rules to government, rules enforced uh, by social conventions. You know, if, if somebody comes over to my house, I don't like smoking in my house. So the rule is no smoking in my house. And if you want to smoke, go outside. That's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of anarchy that I favor. I don't like the government telling me that I, I cannot have or must have anything going on in my house because it's none of the government's business. It's my property. You know, I, I do understand as a practical matter that, you know, some degree of government may be necessary in this horrible world that we have to deal with sometimes. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, as a sellout. I'm just saying that I understand that position, but I don't think that that precludes aspiring to the ideal, which is the less government that we have, the better it will be for all of us. And, you know, Eric, I was a uh, long time ago, uh, a man named Jim Davies he used to write a lot for Strike the Root. Um, uh, he used to listen to a radio show that I did, an older guy, great guy. And uh, we used to get together and chat sometimes and stuff. And and he pointed out, he said, look, the, the, the thing about the state is that the state says that you can't govern your life or you can't govern your interactions with others. It says that therefore negates the ability to create the state in the first place. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it undercuts the very concept that people are capable of coming together to form something that will handle it. He goes, so we brought up, and, and yesterday I was talking about this. Um, there's a, uh, a court case that came out, I believe is in, um, I'm not even sure now. Let me see if I can find it. Um, uh, it was a court case. Was it Tennessee where they claimed that um, a statute that would prohibit doctors from engaging in so-called gender affirming care um, that they could execute that prohibition on underage kids that they say you can't do this on underage kids. And I said, look, you know, as this this lends itself to the argument of about statism versus non-statism. If people think that, well, you know, we often hear from conservatives, parents should have control. But then the liberals will say, what if the parents agree that it's good to oh mutilate a child so yeah. that the child thinks that he or she is the opposite gender, the opposite sex? Um, then are you OK with that, conservatives? And that causes the conservatives some some vexation. So they say, well, up to a certain age, we have to have some statutes that say that you can't uh, you can't abuse a child. You, you know, there's certain limits. Well, of course, the state is going to define those limits. And you get right back to the argument of what is allowable versus what is not allowable. And I said, look, at least the founders allowed for decentralization. At least they allowed for some sort of means to keep things smaller and escape. But one of the things I didn't mention was I, I said, look, to me, the answer for this is voluntary societies, because then you can have people in voluntary societies. Some people wonder whether people from one voluntary society will try to invade another because they think the kids have to be protected. Generally speaking, that that doesn't really uh, inspire people to go to all the trouble to uh, engage in warfare. It's just not something that they do. The ancient Irish didn't do that sort of thing very much. And of course, even in ancient England, which was much more voluntarist anarchist before they had 
um, the the establishment of the the very strong royal system. They had small chieftains. They had those people then sort of became kings, but they were chieftains and so on. Uh, it was all local. It was reputation. You got tossed out from the tribe. The chieftains would would no longer acknowledge you. That sort of thing. But what struck me, and I didn't mention it last night, and I said, look, if people think that by allowing people to be free of the government apparatus that somehow more children are going to be put in danger, that somehow the people closest to the kids who care most about the kids will somehow not care enough that you need the state, then how is it that those very same people can create a state which is which is distanced from them, has bureaucrats working regardless of the satisfaction people have, has a, a judicial apparatus that is virtually unanswerable, and how is it that that's going to do any better, right? Well, and, so, yeah. yeah, and I think that if we do believe that the state is a reflection of how much people care, even with that crazy stuff that you can bring up and say, look, you know, let's eliminate all those questions. Let's just say it operates perfectly. Well, then you don't need the state because people can do it themselves, which is what Jim Davies brought up to me. He says, look, if you want to protect kids and you say the state's got to form these kid protection things, then you're saying that people care enough or either, either you're saying people don't care enough and the state has to protect the kids which means that the state would never do this because the people wouldn't care enough to have the state do it. Or you are saying that the people do care enough, parents do care enough, and then you don't need the state. They can come up with our own voluntary systems, just like we have for quality control on all sorts of stuff. And they keep stealing from us all the time. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's a, a question begged or a false premise or however you'd like to put it that, that's at the root, I think, of this entire discussion, which is that somehow all risk can be eliminated. And that's absurd. You're not yeah. going to eliminate all risk. Yeah. There's more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live coming up. It's Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Find the Liberty Conspiracy live streaming every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. on Rumble and Rockman and my Twitter at Gard Goldsmith, G-A-R-D Goldsmith. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, your host, and I appreciate you being interested in the principles of individual liberty. Please spread the word. It's time for the Star Trek Mind Mill. time folks for the mind meld with toby leary and toby leary texted me i got to glance at the phone i surreptitiously glanced at the phone sort of like peaches when they come in that heavy syrup i surreptitiously glanced at the phone and the man from hyannis not the man from atlantis no patrick duffy is not in the house we got somebody who believes in freedom i don't know maybe patrick duffy believes in freedom he is the man from hyannis he is of course, Toby Leary from Cape Gunworks. Toby, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. And I, you texted too. That was so cool. It was like a <laughs> bonus for me. Thanks so much, Toby. Thanks for joining the show. 
No problem. I'm glad to be here, Guard, and I'm sorry. I don't have much time. I got to get my daughter to a, a babysitting appointment. So, uh, but I'm here while I can be here, and uh, we'll do it again sometime. I'll oh, make up for it. Definitely, man. Definitely, absolutely. I wanted to mention to you right off, right off the bat, uh, Toby. Just a, well, a nice positive raking story that I got to see out of Michigan. I want to show this to you, and you might have already seen this, so I might not be showing you anything new. But I saw this came out four hours ago. A lot of the people up in Michigan and Wisconsin are starting to do these little enclaves who uh, they're starting to call up their militias or, you know, speak more about militias or the idea of local control. And uh, we see this one from the Daily Mail. Of course, got a report from England to get this one. Uh, Holton Township, Michigan, establishes its own militia to protect Second Amendment and declares it will not enforce new red flag laws restricting gun ownership. And uh, so I don't know if you've seen that one, but of course, we have a darker story to discuss coming right up. Hmm. I have not. No, that's news to me. I, yeah. I haven't really paid attention to the news much today because I uh, had endless meetings and customers and whatnot. So um, I, I'm way behind the eight ball. So uh, well, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into that a little bit more and also discussing with you what you're going to be planning on the state level, because we know on the state level, Facets of what we're going to be discussing about Liz Warren for the next couple minutes before you have to fly are are actually folded into the Massachusetts legislation that you were successful in putting off. It's not dead. Um, but let's bring this story up, folks, uh, for the audience. If you're familiar, it is uh, I'll show you the, the uh, bill is S3223. It's called the Ammo. How quaint. The Ammo Act. And we've got. The PR from Liz Warren's tax-funded website, where she says, U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren, Richard, call me Vietnam vet, although I never went, Blumenthal, and of Connecticut, and representatives, so-called representatives, they don't represent anybody, it's impossible mathematically, Robert Garcia, Democrat of California, and Debbie Trust Me Schultz Wasserman, sorry, I always get that wrong. I don't know what it is, Toby. When I see Wasserman, I always say, Debbie, trust me. I don't know what the problem is. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who really was a star when Thomas Massey exposed her a couple days ago about the automobile shutoff switch, introduced their Ammunition Modernization and Monitoring Oversight Act. So I guess they, I guess there's a basement room in that, in the Congress where they can go to pick out these anagrams. It's called the Ammo Act, of course. Uh, and this is just amazing when it comes to background checks, uh, federal firearms licenses, no ability to be able to actually buy or trade ammunition. Tell us a little bit about this, even record keeping, contrary to the Fourth Amendment. Toby, what's your take on this right now? It's right now, it's just been proposed over the past week or so. Yeah, it's the typical death by a thousand cuts approach that the anti-gun left and anti-gunners in general have been taking this approach for 30 or 40 years, maybe even longer now. And so after the Bruin case that came out June of 2022, they realized their days are numbered. The gun control days are numbered. So um, ammunition is obviously a protected arm under the Second Amendment, just like magazines are. And they hope 
that they'll be able to pass this and use the age-old common sense gun control like or gun safety type of bill like doesn't it make sense guard that you wouldn't be able to buy ammunition for somebody else doesn't it make sense that you shouldn't be able to hoard stockpiles of ammunition what good is that nobody and it's all all it's all defined by them common sense hoarding stockpiles every it's just it's so insufferable the 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 conceit and arrogance of these people even as they tell you they're doing it for your own good right Right. oh yeah it's your own good your own safety we just want to keep everyone safe and it's common sense and nobody needs and fill in the blank to any other ism that they've come out with in the past 30 40 years and it's a retread of old tactics it's not going to stand the test of time constitutionally. They know that, but they do it anyway. And that's unfortunate because um, they they would rather spend your money, your time, your life having to defend and claw back your rights that continually get taken away from these uh, anti-Second Amendment, anti-civil rights senators and representatives. And the bottom line is, um, it it won't stand judicial scrutiny, maybe to the to the point where if it does somehow pass the House of Representatives, it may pass the Senate. It is gaining some steam. There's other senators that have signed on to it. But yeah. if it was able to pass both and, and Biden signed it into law, then it may even just have a preliminary injunction. It is that egregious of a anti-civil rights, anti-Second Amendment law. But nevertheless, they're going to try, they're going to throw anything they got at at the wall and hope it sticks. If it delays or uh, encumbers the Second Amendment in any way, shape, or form, they are, in, they are in favor of it. And they would love nothing more than to tie us up in court for decades and decades to come so that we have to it's the opposite of the american uh system that has been set up which is right a you're innocent until proven guilty or b in this case this is a right that is enumerated by the constitution and the only way government can restrict it is if they are giving given explicit authority and power to do so they have the power because that's the nature of their business but they lack constitutional authority there is nothing in the text of the second amendment there is nothing in the historical analog of our country's uh nation at the time of the ratification in 1791 that would substantiate or that would uh, uphold this type of legislation it will fail miserably and yeah. go to the ash heap of where all other bad bills have gone to go and and as it should the problem is they know this and they do it anyway right and and, the- and it's possible that maybe some of these people are going to sign on to this because they know it's not going to it's not going to stick they're throwing stuff up there but they want to use it for political purposes when they try to run again they've got constituencies that say oh i tried but we had the right. blockage from the nra Whatever the purposes are, they're playing They're playing with our rights. They're playing chicken with our rights. And mm-hmm. they're going to go over the side. Let's run through, Toby, if we can, um, how 
if this is challenged, if this passes, and then it's challenged, a couple of the sequences based on the Bruin decision, what the what the different levels of analysis are for these types of proposals and how they're trying to squeeze this in with ammunition. But it'll still run through the same sort of analyses based on the Bruin precedent. Yeah, it's actually the Heller precedent that really yeah. is, the, is the standard that Bruin reaffirmed as good law. And uh, Mark Smith from Four Boxes Diner has done a lot of videos on this that uh, really spells it out from a high level of technical law. Um, he's a constitutional scholar, if you, if you will, and a member of the Supreme Court Bar Association. And uh, he really operates at a very high level. But basically, what the way it works is the Heller mandate the Heller case back in 2008, we just celebrated the 15th anniversary of Heller. Yeah. Did the historical analysis of when is the period of time, the second amendment should be referenced for, um, you know, any type of historical analysis dealing with the text first. And if it's not in the text, so if the, if there's nothing in the text that would, allow you to pass whatever law it is you're about to pass, then now the burden shifts to the government to prove that it was consistent with the the historical analysis or the the history of our country at the time of the Second Amendment's ratification in 1791. Now, Toby, just to to jump in there, I I do want to mention the one thing that I I have a slight problem with that because— as you've seen and as I've seen, it should just be the text. That's it, right? It should just be the text. And if they want to change it, but you you can see where they sort of try to give a little bit and say, well, at the time, can we understand the text better if this was being done and so on? But the problem is you can you can find instances where people did make mistakes after 1791, after in the 1800s, when they did make mistakes and people can say, well, there's a historical precedent. You see, they went up against the Second Amendment, but those were mistakes. And even if they're upheld by courts, even if it's upheld, nobody has a moral authority to tell me I can't arm myself. So I figured right. I would just mention that because there is room occasionally for these lawyers to try to find some example and say, well, that was done, even though it actually runs contrary to the explicit wording of the Second Amendment. Yeah. And it's important to note that, though, Guard, because this is um, and again, it's a very high level technical level, because if it didn't point to that, then you could say, well, the second amendment gives you the right to murder people. Well, no, it doesn't. And the, right. and the, they dealt with that at the time of the ratification in 1791 was uh, murder was illegal. Didn't matter what you used. Uh, but the second amendment wasn't all of a sudden this permission slip to do things that were contrary to natural law. Right. So it's, it's very important to reference a 1791 and B what the restrictions were historically on the Second Amendment. So it wasn't the the same type of restrictions that they're proffering now. It was um, the, you know, if a violent person had access to firearms, they did disarm them. That was a thing. And most people are like, okay, that's a good thing. If if this guy is a career criminal, he's going to commit violence. Yeah, disarm him. And the best way they disarmed him was to lock him in jail. Um, So by locking them in jail, they deprive them of all kinds of rights, the right to vote, the right to 
bear arms, the right to peacefully assemble. Uh, I guess you could peacefully assemble in your jail cell. But uh, the point I'm trying to make is uh, there was a deprivation of rights, but it was through due process of law. That's what right. the Fifth Amendment protects us of. And you that's very defy- important. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry to jump in, but uh, a lot of people might say, well, you see, this this would allow for red flag laws. It's like, no, here's the deal. Just as it wasn't up in Maine, if you've got an example of somebody who's brandishing a firearm in a criminally threatening way, then you have reason to arrest that person, get them away and put them in a place where now the judicial process will begin and they can be charged with a crime. If after due process, they're found to have not to have been erroneously charged, then, you know, they get a speedy trial, they get a jury and so on and so forth. Then they're released. The minute they're back out there, and this is the problem I have with the 68 Gun Control Act, anybody who's outside of a prison should be able to keep and bear arms. It's utterly ridiculous that suddenly they say, well, you're safe enough to be outside of prison, but not safe enough to actually exercise the right that you had before you went into prison. If that yeah. person's not safe enough, they should still be in jail. I they agree 100 percent. And there's a yeah. ton of cases that are dealing with that very issue right now. Uh, there's the um, there's a Brian Range case and one that was just adjudicated two days ago, I believe, in um, Texas. And there's also the one that's before the Supreme Court right now, uh, the Rahimi case. But not to get down that rabbit trail, the Heller doctrine w- analyzed through our historical analysis what the right to keep and bear arms meant as of the ratification of 1791. Where Hel- uh, Bruin came in and affirmed that is good law. And what that meant for, for all intents and purposes is that you cannot ban any arm that is in common and ordinary use. Doesn't matter what the arm is, if it's in common and ordinary use. So basically, any and all modern gun, pistol, rifle, shotgun, whatever you want to call it, assault weapon... And the ammunition and the magazines that support that are in common and ordinary use. So therefore, they cannot be banned, period, without the government doing its due diligence to show at the time of the ratification that, you know, it, it, it was uh, in the text, the history or the tradition of our country to do so. Right. So they don't have that on their side. Where Bruin really comes in is it took away the the... You mentioned the mistakes in the past. That was all done on an interest balancing, tiers of scrutiny, um, two-step level of scrutiny approach to gun laws. So basically, it would say, oh, it's in the interest of the people. The legislature has passed this. They want it. So give it to them. And many mistakes were made along the way of doing that. But the Bruin case said, no, 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 no. You must go back to the text, history, and tradition, or you don't get it. If it's not in there, throw it out. It's a bad law. It can't be passed. It can't be upheld. The courts must throw it out. And that's the big difference between Heller and Bruin. Heller, they didn't do that. They did the text analysis and the history and the tradition analysis, but they stopped short of informing the lower courts that a two-step process is still allowed, uh, unallowed. Right. They did that in Bruin. They set that right. straight. And they said, no longer can you take a two-step 
interest balancing, tiers of scrutiny approach to the Second Amendment. It is an enumerated right. And just like any other right, it is subject to the same set of standards that all other rights are afforded. And you can't treat it any different. It's not the redheaded stepchild of the rights world. It's not the one that says, you know, you get to make up the rules as you go. And it's not the one that says uh, common sense or whatever fill in the blankism you want to put there. Nope. Uh, Clarence Thomas set the record straight and said, the two-step approach is one step too many. You must use strict scrutiny when dealing with the Second Amendment. So all gun control is on the table. It's on the chopping block. Its days are numbered and everybody knows it. Yeah. And I think these people are desperate as uh, I'll bring this back up on the screen. We got Warren Blumenthal, Garcia on the representative side, Schultz from Florida, of course, and many others on the, the, the hardcore collectivist side. And I think you're right. You know, many years ago, you remember Benson's Wild Animal Farm in southern New Hampshire, Toby? Oh, yeah. I don't know if you were. Yeah. So it was in Hudson, I think. I, I was there and it's closed up now as a park there. And they had a, a chimp there and he was throwing his own poop at the glass. Uh, maybe at the people standing in front of the glass, you know, maybe he was not too happy being inside that glass container. And uh, that's the way I see these people. They're throwing poop at us and they're just trying to see what sticks. And uh, although uh, personally, you know, uh, not even personally, I think just logically and morally, uh, the word sh- the the phrase shall not be infringed has no contingencies on it. I do like the standard better of the Bruin standard than what has already you know, been established. And I think that it is causing just endless vexation for these people, which is one of the reasons why they want to over, overturn the number of people who are conservatives on the court, so-called conservatives on the court. And uh, so it looks like this will probably go the same way, Toby. I'll leave it, leave it with this. They've got these little pieces in here where they say they're going to require data sharing on ammunition sales. Um, they're going to say that it will so-called restrict individuals from purchasing ammunition to then sell illegally to others. Again, there's an assumption there that there can be an illegal sale of ammunition. Uh, it, again, I, I bring this up. Does the possession of an item connote aggressive action against someone? Is it an aggressive act? No. Right. Is it a criminal act against someone to own something? No. Do, does anyone know intent? of buying ammunition no nobody can actually know why that person might want to buy that and yet these people are the ones who point their government guns at us for this process so it's definitely going to be a a very big deal for them politically and rhetorically but again i think i think you're right even if it does pass it's not going to pass muster we've got invasion of the fourth amendment we've got the uh the businesses of course they say businesses are not required to possess licenses in order to sell ammunition and can sell to any buyer in any quantity without a background check and with no record keeping or data well that's something they want to change so you already have to deal with this sort of stuff and in massachusetts they try to do this sort of thing so you feel pretty confident that this thing is is not going to be able to stand muster down the line it won't but the problem is again that you know we constantly have to get on the defensive hire attorneys pay money to claw back our rights when somebody needs to figure out a way it's someone smarter than me how to charge these people with malfeasance for the dereliction of their duty because under title 18 u.s code section 242 they 
are depriving Americans of their rights, which there is a very harsh crime for the deprivation of rights. And they're doing it knowingly and willingly, and they're breaking their oath of office while doing it. So they swear an oath to uphold the Constitution against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. Then they enter into their chambers and shake hands and make backdoor, back back, uh, room deals in in a way to deprive you of that right. And then they go out and they vote for it. And it is it is an absolute abomination, and they should be held uh, personally and severably liable. They should be able to be sued for the deprivation of your rights and my rights. They should yeah. also look at the full extent of that law, that Title 18, Section 242 of the U.S. Code. It actually, if somebody's life is lost while that government official in the color, under the color of law is depriving you of that right, you can get the death penalty. And I would love to see people who think they're so smart and they're sitting up there in their ivory towers in their moral, uh, you know, high ground as they like to see it look down their nose at you and I because we choose to defend our families and protect ourselves with arms that are constitutionally protected. And they want to take that away and deprive us and tell us where we can and can't carry. And if somebody's life is lost as a result of them under their color of law, them depriving me of that right, then they should suffer uh, the the consequences of violation of Section 242 of 18, Title 18 U.S. Code. Toby, well, thank you so yeah. much for joining us. I know you've got to fly. You, You're yes, awesome. Sir. And thank you also You know, we can look at the consequential side of this, which is that the possession of firearms reduces the, you know, the greater number of firearms in a civilian uh, zone. There is you get a a greater reduction in violent crime. It's been shown, uh, you know, cross culturally, nation to nation state. They've done comparisons, even county to county, as John Lott has done. Uh, But you hit the moral and the constitutional sides of it. And I so appreciate you doing that. That is absolutely essential. And I want to remind people they can go to capegunworks.com, find out what you do. You're located in Hyannis, and they can also listen to your program, Rapid Fire. Last point, when can they listen to it before you go? We're on every uh, Wednesday from 4 to 6 p.m. You can go to rapidfireradio.us and sign up to be notified whenever we go live because sometimes we change days and times. So, uh, awesome. I would definitely sign up there. So thank All you, right. sir. I do have to Toby. run. I appreciate your guard. And Rock we'll do on, it again man. soon. Take we'll care. talk to you soon. Take care. Awesome stuff from Toby Leary. We got an outgoing theme for him. And what's this? It's Radio Birdman with Smith and Wesson Blues. It's Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Find the Liberty Conspiracy live streaming every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. on Rumble and Rockman and my Twitter at Guard Goldsmith. This is Mark Edge with Free Talk Live. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com is one of the best real estate agents I've ever worked with. I've been through about two dozen real estate transactions in my life and I feel like I know what I'm doing, but there's always the things that you don't know that you don't know. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com found a problem with the house that I was buying that ultimately saved me $65,000. He's a consummate professional, holds his people to his own high standards, and I would unequivocally recommend him for any real estate purchase in New Hampshire. Don't sell yourself short. Contact PorcupineRealEstate.com. 